Acts chapter 21. As you're turning there, I will share with you that driving at an accelerated pace on any road is, of course, always an intrinsic risk. However, 70 miles per hour is safer on certain roads than others. If you are on the interstate, uh, that is very different than being on a gravel road. Well, even less safe is being on a country road that is a dirt road used primarily by tractors. Um, Once when I was in high school, I found myself in the back seat of a car on a Friday night uh, with several friends. Uh, This was a situation that was not a great one. Not, you know, we weren't sinning or doing anything insane, but we were just fools. And in particular, the people in the car with me were all fools, myself included. In this car, I believe that there were three people in the front two seats with two seat belts. As far as I know, neither of them being used. And in the back seat, there were four of us guys, most of them much larger than I was, high school athletes, crammed into the tiny back seat of a car with three seat belts, to my knowledge, none of them being used. And of course, we were traveling. Uh, we wanted to go find this colony that was supposedly out there in the middle of nowhere in Kansas that these strange vegetarian separatists went out and literally all of them died. And so there's some ruins from them. And so one night, late in the evening, on a Friday, my friends and I decided we're going to go find this mythological location and see the ruins of this place. Well, my friend who was driving was a fool and was driving down the dirt road at roughly or 70 miles per hour. And at one point, we came over a small hill. It's Kansas. There's not any big hills. And we came over a small hill, and on the other side of that hill were cows that were crossing the dirt road. Now, I don't know if you guys have any comprehension of what a cow does to a car, but just imagine what happens when a deer and a a car connect with one another. A deer are designed by nature to be slick and slim, capable of running through the forest without getting stuck in any thickets. They are designed to be narrow creatures. They are not overwhelmingly heavy creatures. But cows, on the other hand, they are designed to be fat. They are designed to be massive. They are typically three to four times the weight of a large adult male deer. Well, we were driving over that hill, and the car went directly between two cows, so closely that the right rear-view mirror was snapped off by one of the cows, and the other side of the car's front fender and most of the side of the car was pressed in where it had hit this large animal. If we had been one inch in either direction, we would have been either severely injured or killed. The Lord was very kind to spare us that day. We'll come back to that in a moment. Today we arrive at a pivotal moment in the book of Acts. Although verse 16 that we are the 16 verses that we're going to cover could easily be breezed past as nothing more than an interesting travel journal, I want you to see that this moment in the life of Paul is going to be the first moment where he becomes clearly aware in our text about the fact that he is going to be taken prisoner. And this imprisonment is not going to be like any of the past. It will not just be an overnight stay in a Philippian jail. This imprisonment will carry Paul through the rest of the book of Acts and, in fact, through the rest of his entire life. Please follow along as I begin reading in Acts chapter 21, verse 1. This is the holy and inspired, powerful Word of God. It reads, 
And when we had parted from them, we set sail. We came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was unloaded of its, to unload of its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days were there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go weeping and, um, up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, dear God, we do pray that as we come together and gather in this room, that we would not do so alone, but that your Spirit would be leading us, would be instructing us, would be causing us to be more clearly aware of what your Word teaches. Lord, in particular, as we come to some challenging things, some confusing things at the surface level of the text today, I ask for wisdom I pray, Lord, that you would give me the accurate and correct assessment of exactly what to say, and Lord, I do ask that you would help us to believe the way that you lead and how you lead, and that we would follow your lead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There are some passages in the book of Acts that we have covered so far that have led to little or even sometimes no controversy throughout church history. There are some passages that theologians and scholars and pastors and generally all Christians look at and they see the text and they agree about its content. This is not one of those texts. In fact, some of the most dangerous distortions of the gospel in the modern church grow out of some of the historic and recent misinterpretations of these verses. So for our sermon today, we're going to ask and answer four really important theological questions regarding the verses that we just read. And in doing so, it's my aim that we will develop a deeper understanding of the way God has chosen to communicate and a deeper love for the God who has communicated to us. So here are our four questions for the morning. Question number one, was the Holy Spirit being contradictory? Question number two, does this passage endorse female pastors? 
Question number three, did Agabus, did his prophecy fail? And question number four, is prophecy still happening today? Let's begin with question number one. Was the Holy Spirit being contradictory? As we read through the text a moment ago, you heard the meticulous cartographical skills of Dr. Luke. He is taking you all over the map as he is showing you the breakdown of the travels of Paul. But what was the goal? Why are they traveling? What is their final destination? Well, Paul has already made his intentions clear in multiple cities that he is going to Jerusalem. For example, in Romans chapter 15, verse 25, as well as several other places, we learn exactly what Paul's practical mission was. In Romans that he had written during this trip, he writes, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. His purpose was to bring money to the Christians in Jerusalem who were suffering both due to persecution and due to a famine in the land. However, this was not just a spur-of-the-moment decision or a plan based on the whim of emotion. In Acts chapter 19, verse 21, we hear the first mention of Paul's plan to go to Jerusalem. But don't overlook that it also tells us why he's going. It says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Notice that it was the Holy Spirit that caused his resolve. Now here's the big question. If that's the case, if the Holy Spirit is indeed sending him to Jerusalem, the question must be asked, what does it mean in verse 4 that through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem? Is the Holy Spirit contradicting himself? Well, let me share with you three explanations that people have given for this passage that I think will bring some clarity. The first option, the way that people have understood this, is that some have argued the Holy Spirit changed his mind and was therefore reaching out to Paul through the mouths of other people to inform Paul that he needed to change course. And those who hold this view believe that Paul was wrong to ignore their warnings and that he should have avoided Jerusalem altogether because the most updated, the most recent information from the Holy Spirit was do not go. There's a lot of major problems with this view. And the main problem is that it is heresy. Heresy is that which, if believed, denies the true Christian faith. In order to believe that the Holy Spirit gave contradictory messages, you must believe that the Holy Spirit is not all-knowing. He must not know the future. Nobody who knows everything ever changes their mind because no new information could possibly be provided to make them change. You would have to believe that He is also not immutable. That means that He changes. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. We know from James that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Holy Spirit cannot and will not and has never given contradictory claims. To say so would deny His deity. Clearly, this is not the right understanding of the passage. The second way that some have sought to explain what's going on here is by taking the letter S in that sentence, the Spirit, and they make it into a lowercase letter. They believe that this is not speaking about the Holy Spirit leading them to say these things, but rather that in their own spirit they decided to say these things. 
They were troubled in spirit, and therefore they warned Paul. Now, sometimes the word spirit is used that way. For example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that he is with them in spirit when they are going to discipline the person who is there. That does not mean that the Holy Spirit is somehow connected them over the distance. It means that he has in his own soul agreed with their need to discipline this individual. Sometimes it's used that way. And although that would easily solve our problem and would clear up the confusion of this text, the problem with this, this interpretation is that it cannot possibly be supported by the language of the text. Whenever you find this construction, it is always talking about the Holy Spirit. So those who are trying to claim that this is the individual spirit of those who are speaking does undermine the fact that the Scripture is clearly saying the Holy Spirit had some involvement in this process. Which brings us to our third option, the one that I believe to be correct. I believe that the text is telling us that the Holy Spirit did reveal something to these people that Paul would suffer. I do not believe that they told Paul, God does not want you to go, Paul. Do not go. And let me provide three reasons why I have arrived at this conclusion. First, this is not the first time that Paul has been warned about the danger of going to Jerusalem. It's just the first time we see it specifically recorded in this text. If you, interestingly enough, go back a little bit, you will find that um, when Paul explained this to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 22 through 23, it tells us that the Holy Spirit was testifying to Paul everywhere that he went that his journey to Jerusalem would result in being in prison. It reads, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. So I don't know what's going to happen to me when I get to Jerusalem, but everywhere I go, the Holy Spirit is using people to tell me I'm going to get much affliction from returning to Jerusalem. It does not say that they are telling him not to go there, but that he is going to suffer there. It appears that everywhere he went, people were telling him that the Holy Spirit had revealed that he was traveling towards danger. If you think back to the Old Testament, if you remember Elijah and Elisha, do you remember when Elijah was nearing the end of his earthly life, and he was traveling uh, with Elisha, his main student. And Elisha began talking to the other prof uh, prophetic students, and they kept saying, do you know that today is the day that he's going away? And all of these other prophets seemed to know that this is the day that was going to be Elijah's last day on earth. Well, there's a lot more to that story, but the fact of the matter is, the Lord allowed them to see that something unique and uh, life-ending was going to take place for Elijah. Now, of course, we know that there was a uh, fiery chariot that came down and picked him up and took him into heaven so that his end-of-life experience was far different than any of ours will be. But the point being, they were all capable of seeing that something was on the horizon. The Lord gave prophetic awareness. But secondly, you want to see that later in our text today, you are going to see that there is a prophet named Agabus who is going to act out a play displaying that Paul was going to be imprisoned. After that, we see his companions, Paul's companions, try to persuade him to cancel the trip. And because Luke uses the word we, I think we're supposed to understand that even Luke himself was saying to Paul, look, the Holy Spirit is saying great suffering is on the horizon. Please don't go. Even Luke himself seems to have joined in. 
But notice that it was never the Holy Spirit that said not to go. It was those people who loved Paul and were concerned for his safety. Several years ago, I spoke to the parent of a missionary. This missionary was getting ready to be sent into a relatively dangerous area of the world, and they were committed to going to that place for a number of years. And I spoke to the parent, a believing parent of this adult, and I said, how you feeling? How you doing about this? And he said, I believe in missions. I believe in sending people to the foreign field. I believe that this is how God builds his church. But I am terrified for my child, and I do not want my child to go. And of course, the Lord used that as a faith-building opportunity for this parent. But I just want you to know, that's how these people seem to be feeling. It's not that the Holy Spirit said don't go. It's that Luke and all of the others who were with him loved Paul so much that they desired his safety over his obedience. Thirdly, and most poignantly, I believe, think of it this way. If the Holy Spirit told the people of that city that Paul should not go to Jerusalem, if they said, the Holy Spirit has given us word, you must not go, then it is a sinful thing for Paul to have disobeyed the Holy Spirit. But it does not seem that any of these people believe that Paul is disobeying God by his actions. Instead, notice that when he commits himself to traveling, these people, instead of saying, Paul, you're, you're rejecting the word of God, instead they walk with him down to the beach with their entire families, and they get on their knees in the sand, and they pray with him. They pray together with Paul as he goes. It certainly does not appear as though they were standing in rebuke of his actions. It appears as though they were concerned for his safety, and that though they know he's going to suffer, they dedicate themselves to praying for him. So no, this does not teach that the Holy Spirit ever contradicts or changes his mind. It's revealing that they knew something that was to come. Likely they knew at least some level of the suffering he would experience. But if they believed it was from the Holy Spirit that he must not go, then they would not have followed him to the beach and prayed with him and sent him off encouragingly. To do so would have been sinful on their part to help someone in their disobedience. This brings us to the conclusion of our first question. Was the Holy Spirit contradictory? Absolutely not. The Holy Spirit was not contradicting himself. He did show these people something. He showed them that Paul would suffer. The second question that we have to get to today is, what does this passage tell us about female pastors and preachers? You see, when Paul arrives in Caesarea, we come into contact with an old friend from earlier parts of the book of Acts. Paul and his friends find themselves staying in the house of Philip, who was called the Evangelist. This is the same Philip who was chosen as one of the first deacons all the way back in the early parts of Acts. He's the one who famously led the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord. At the end of that encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch, we read this about him in Acts chapter 8, verse 40. It says, But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through, as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now we see that he is been walking faithfully in that city of Caesarea for 25 years. And he seems to be a prominent leader in the church. It also tells us that he settled down there, he got married, and now he has four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, here's where we reach some level of controversy. 
there are many modern scholars who have sought to use this text as a source text to defend the idea of having female pastors. Let me explain that a little bit more carefully. Uh, First, we should happily acknowledge the fact that the Lord did give give these women the gift of prophecy. Amen. Do you remember when the Holy Spirit first arrived at Pentecost, all the way back in Acts chapter 2? And when that Holy Spirit came, the, the people in the upper room were filled with the Spirit and were given the opportunity to speak in other languages, and then they go out into the marketplace, and Peter preaches a sermon in which 3,000 people respond by converting to Christianity. Well, in that sermon, Peter quoted extensively from the prophet Joel, and here's just one taste of what he quoted in Acts chapter 2, verse 17. This is from Joel chapter 2. It is quoted by Peter. He says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So certainly, this was something understood to be taking place. And Peter tells us, this is not something that is future. This is fulfilled in your hearing. It should not be surprising, therefore, to find these women in our chapter today receiving the gift of prophecy from the Lord. He promised He would give it. However, if we're going to treat this text with integrity, we also have to acknowledge a few other things. First, there is no indication in this text what the prophecies of these presumably young girls were, and it also never says to whom they prophesied. There's no record of those things. So in order to make the argument that these women were holding authority or teaching or leading men, one would have to insert their own implicit biases. Secondly, we have a clear biblical teaching elsewhere that teaches us with no wiggle room that pastoral authority is designated by God as a role for men in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 33 through 35 says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, this is certainly not claiming that women should not have any voice to communicate verbally within the building or the confines of the congregation. No, it's not saying that you must wait to open your mouth until you get back into your car. That kind of uh, approach to this text is very inaccurate. The kind of speaking that it's talking about here is the speaking of instruction. That is why it speaks to the issue of submission. Paul says it more succinctly in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. That's what it means to, ha- to be silent in church. Paul continues to explain that this is due to both the order of creation and the order of the fall. In other words, he says that God made man first and that Eve sinned first, and that is the biblical reason why women are not to hold those forms of authority. Neither of those things have or ever will change. So when coming to a text like the one we have today, there are many people in the modern church, many modern scholars and theologians and pastors and Christians, who look at this verse and they will use it to make an incredible stretch to make the text say what they want it to say, while simultaneously looking at clear passages regarding teaching and preaching, and they will do everything they can to run from the clear meaning of those texts. 
So to answer your question, this doesn't say anything about female pastors or teachers at all, positively or negatively. All it tells us is that these young women were able to use the gift of prophecy. And it does show us, however, that women and children have a great deal of significance in the church, and that women and children are given gifts that they are to use, that they are not required to be men or even adults in order for them to be used for the glory of God and for kingdom purposes. Regardless of your gender and regardless of your age, if you are a Christian, God wants you to do what he has given you to do in ministry to the church. That is both meaningful and necessary for the body to be healthy. So I want to encourage you, don't be afraid or upset at these things. God is desirous to use all of us for his glory. Question number three that we come to from the text today is, the, is a really important one. Is the question, did Agabus's prophecy fail? It's becoming more and more clear to me all the time, and I hopefully think this is important for you to see as well, that language matters. Um, Bob did a great job today of speaking about the fact that words, words matter. The things that we say matter. Definitions matter. People have begun to realize that you can win a debate, you can win an argument, you can win a battle, you can win a cultural revolution without changing the rules. You just have to change the definitions. Definitions matter matter. There is a strange and concerning teaching that has cropped up in the last 30 years or so that has totally changed the game regarding prophecy. Uh, One of the most well-known scholars and theologians um, that is alive today wrote a significant change into the modern understanding of what prophecy is. He argues that Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy are completely different things. In his view, Old Testament prophecy is something that is certain. It's infallible. It was to be taken literally to such an extent that if you got it wrong, if somebody prophesied and it did not come to to pass, you were required to drag them out of the city and stone them to death. We find that, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 13. However, uh, this, one of the most influential scholars of our day, argues that there is a mysterious and unspoken switch that occurs in the New Testament. The rules don't apply anymore. He argues that now prophecies can be mistaken and that prophets can get it wrong. And although God speaks clearly, we as imperfect messengers can muddy it up. How does he back up this argument? He does so by our passage today. He looks at Agabus and he claims that this man got it wrong, that his prophecy was incorrect. Well, how so? Let's look at verses 10 and 11 again. If you've got your Bible open on your lap, look at that in your own copy of Scripture. It says, While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So what's the problem here? Well, simply this. According to Agabus, it was the Jews who would hand Paul over to the Gentiles. It says that they particularly will bind him and hand him over. Well, as we will see in coming weeks, it was actually the Roman soldiers who arrest Paul. They are the ones who take him into custody. So certain scholars use this as a reason to claim that, well, because this happened, all prophecies in the New Testament is to be viewed as something different than Old Testament prophecy. 
Well, here's the problem with that thinking. Agabus was not wrong. Let me give you three reasons why I believe he was right. His prophecy did come true. First, Agabus was inspired to act out this prophecy, just like many people in the Old Testament were told to give some kind of a visual illustration of what's going to happen. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and even others were given opportunity at different times to act out some kind of drama that would represent a message to the people. Sometimes that would include cutting up a book and burning it. Sometimes that would include walking around naked. Strange things would happen, and the Lord would use them as illustrations for what is going on in the kingdom of Israel. Well, those prophecies were designed to display generalities, not specificities. The binding of Paul was done symbolically, not literally. Secondly, although Paul was in the custody of the Romans, he was under the authority of King Agrippa, the grandson of Herod. And although Agrippa was not biologically Jewish, he was the official king of the Jews. And so politically speaking, Paul was handed over from the authority of the Jews to the Romans. But third, and I believe most importantly... Paul tells us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Agabus got it right. Here's how. In Acts chapter 28, verse 17, Paul says, After three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people, who were our people, the Jews, or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Who was it that handed him over? According to Paul, it was his own people who handed him over into the Romans' custody. So according to his own estimation, under the inspiration of the Spirit, it was the Jews who handed him over to the Romans. So no, Agabus did not get it wrong, but this information helps us as we move forward in answering the following question. To answer this question with finality, There is no difference in prophecy today than there was in the Old Testament or the New Testament, except for, question number four, is prophecy still happening today? You see, the theologians who claim that New Testament prophecy can be incorrect do so because they have a commitment to the idea that prophecy must still be active today, and the only possible explanation for why so many people get it wrong is the fact that New Testament prophecy must be different from the Old Testament. However, I believe that the New Testament form of prophecy is identical to the Old Testament form of prophecy. It must always hold true. The only difference is that it all concluded in the Old Testament, I'm sorry, the apostolic era. In other words, it is not still happening today. Now, this is a large argument for a full sermon someday, but for now I will simply say that 1 Corinthians 13 tells us prophecy will cease. Prophecy will cease. Everyone must agree that at some point, prophecy, the gift of prophecy, will come to an end. The question is, when will that happen? Although much more focus in our modern day is given to the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy is a far greater consequence. Here's why. If God is continuing to give new revelation, then we must obey it. If God is continuing to give new words, then it is authoritative for the church, and we should do everything we can to find it and follow it. If God is giving fresh truth that we are to follow, then we should be trying to write it down and to command it to all Christians of all time moving forward. 
You see, there are groups who believe that this is the way the church operates even to this day, and those mostly fall into two categories, false religions and Pentecostals. False religions, like, for example, the Roman Catholic Church, they believe that the church receives fresh revelation all the time through the Pope. And whatever the Pope says, that is now the standard for the church. And they will acknowledge that it may be different than what the Holy Spirit said in the past. They will acknowledge that there are transformations, but because God is continuing to speak through the vicar of Christ, he is now giving fresh word to the church that must be obeyed. I will also say that the official doctrine of most Pentecostals claims that every Christian might receive an authoritative word from God. And I don't believe they understand how dangerous that concept is. The reality is that God has spoken to us. He has spoken to us through His Word, and we do not need any further revelation. Now, this is a bigger argument for another time, but for now, let me simply state that just like there are no more apostles, there are no more prophets. We'll see a little bit more about why that's so dangerous in a moment. And you might be saying, look, look you've talked about four controversies this morning. I don't really care about any of them. Well, let me just say this is more than a hair-splitting argument, and we'll do so by landing with just a few very practical applications for you that I think will, you will find greatly valuable. First, be led by the Spirit. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, verse 14, that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, you have been given the Holy Spirit who does lead you. Well, what does that look like? Does it look like being given fresh word of prophecy? Well, let me say, although it is always supernatural, the work of the Holy Spirit is not always bombastic. In fact, it typically is not. What does it look like to be led by the Spirit according to the Scripture? Well, Galatians chapter 5 tells us that it looks like being convicted of our sin. It looks like fighting temptation. It looks like growing in Christian character. Romans chapter 8 teaches us that the Holy Spirit helps us to put to death the deeds of the body, and He helps us to recognize truth, and He helps us to pray. None of those things are greatly bombastic. Throughout the New Testament, most of the operations of the Holy Spirit occur through, the, through regular church means, like the counsel of many, or the study of the Word of God, or the preaching of His Word. In a practical way, I believe that the Holy Spirit does work in the hearts of His people when they study the Word. For example, for myself, I believe that the Spirit helps me when I study in preparation for a sermon such as this one. While I am in my study and I am reading commentaries and I am writing notes and I am looking at diagrams and I am trying to understand the original languages, I, I look at those things, but I do so prayerfully asking the Holy Spirit to give me wisdom and understanding. And I believe that when you study the Scripture, you do the same thing or you should. Even so, there are occasions that I have prepared. I have put 20 hours into preparing a sermon, and I have everything in my notes, and then I get up into this space, and I stand here, and I believe with full confidence the Lord tells me something that is not in my notes, that He desires, He puts into my mind, and reveals to me something that I should say to you. Is that prophecy? No, it is not. It is teaching. It is wisdom. It is something that the Lord is giving uh, a word for that moment. But is it prophetic? Absolutely not. In the early 2000s, my foolish friends uh, were nearly killed by hitting a group of cows. 
What I didn't tell you about this story is the aftermath. We, of course, nobody had, I mean, I don't know if any teenager in the Midwest had cell phones back then. I don't even know if we know, knew they existed back then. We got back into the car, picked up the pieces that had fallen off the vehicle, and we, we traveled back and dropped everybody off at home. And when I got back to my house, uh, my mother was waiting up for me. Now, this was unusual. She had never done this before, as, as far as I can remember. And she had, she had always trusted me. I had never gotten into any trouble. And so when I walked in and I saw her awake far past her bedtime, I was a little surprised. And I thought I was going to be in a little bit of trouble. She said, what were you doing tonight? So I explained. And I explained about the cows, and I explained about the car, and I explained about all the things that had happened. And then she told me that that night, earlier that evening, my pastor called her and said, where is Caleb right now? I cannot shake it. I think he's in trouble. I'm, I'm just convinced I need to stay awake and pray for him, and I think that you should too. And my mother did. She stayed awake for hours until I got home, praying that the Lord would save my life from unknown danger. How did they know that? Was it prophecy? No. They didn't know where I was. They didn't know what I was doing. My pastor did not say, oh, I think he's getting into a car accident. I think he's going to narrowly survive being you know, attacked by ravenous cows. He didn't say anything like that. All they knew was that they needed to pray. Now, what I will admit that as a teenager and even moving forward, I was always very skeptical of that moment. You see, it's important to realize you are not going to receive prophecy. You are not going to receive prophetic word from the Lord, but that does not mean you should not be looking for the will of God in your particular circumstances. It does not mean that the Lord will never impress upon you a need to pray for someone. It does not mean that God will never lead you to show kindness to someone or to be generous to someone, because He does lead you, and He does do so on occasion in very subjective ways, internally shepherding you to where you must go. He does lead us, but that isn't the same thing as prophecy. It is different in that the Lord will never give you a command for another person. He's not going to tell you, go and say, the Lord said you must do this. That would make it a prophecy. You see, I was always skeptical of what happened there until last year. I was always skeptical of the fact that my pastor had this impression that he needed to pray. I thought maybe he had heard what had happened somehow through the grapevine, that he had found out that we were going to be traveling to this colony. Who knows? Well, then last year, I was at a conference with Ashley. She was very pregnant. I think it was the due date or like a day or two before the due date. And so we were sitting right by the exit door in the back of Pastors and Wives Conference. And as we were sitting there, I, I told everyone, if you hear a commotion, don't worry. She's just having a baby. It's fine. And uh, during that service, I did something that I had never done before during a conference. I felt absolutely and overwhelmingly convinced that there was someone that I needed to pray for. You see, there was a member of our church whose mother was near death. And I knew that this woman had been suffering for a number of months. And I knew that I had, I had said, I will pray for her. That was Sue Dunninger's mother. And I, to my great shame, realized while I was sitting there, I said I would pray for this woman. I have not been praying for this woman. And I couldn't shake it. And I couldn't shake the fact that I needed to pray for her right now. And so I literally got up 
Thankfully, it was right next to the exit door. Good planning. And I walked outside, and I sat on a bench, and I began to pray for this woman. And while I was sitting there, I tried to call Lee. Now, Lee was working at the time. He did not answer his phone, but he texted me back. And I looked back over my phone messages. This was the very first time I had ever texted him. And I said to him, Lee, I just was praying for your mother-in-law. How is she doing, and how is Sue doing with it? And Lee texted me back, and he said, well, she's declining fast, but the family is doing a great job of caring for her. I'm very encouraged by them as they care for her in these last stages. Well, that was at about 11 o'clock. Roughly one hour later, I receive another message from Lee. And the message says, 20 minutes ago, my mother-in-law passed away. Why is it that I was sitting there praying for a woman that I had never met, praying for a woman I had not thought about for over a month, praying for a woman that, all things being equal, I was probably never going to meet, yet I was in that moment completely convinced I must pray for this person, so much so that I left the conference and began texting and calling people now, I tell you, I'm hesitant to even share this story with you because, A, I don't want you to be texting people during the sermons, and uh, B, because I don't want us to be searching for these things all the time. In my entire Christian life, this is the only time, the only time I have ever had that kind of overwhelming need to pray for someone. And I believe the Holy Spirit was leading me in that moment to pray for someone who was in literally their very last hour of life. So yes, does the Lord lead us in these ways? I believe He does. But this brings us to our second application. Be careful to never put words in God's mouth. One of the most dangerous phrases that a Christian can ever utter is the phrase, God told me. God said to me, I should do this. God told me I must do that. As I mentioned, God can lead you. God can impress things upon you. God can direct you subjectively. But that subjective feeling is never going to do anything that will uh, be in opposition to God's stated word. It's also important to realize that there are times you will feel that God is leading you in a way, and you will get it wrong. Just as an example, I was speaking to a person uh, several years ago. We were driving around together, and he parked in front of a church building. And this man began to pray with me that the Lord would provide a building for our church to meet in. This was back when I was still pastoring at Redeeming Grace Fellowship in Massapequa. And he pulled into the parking lot of a church, and he said that while we have been praying, the Lord has told me he's going to give you that building right there. It was not this building. <laughs> he was not right. Did the Lord tell him that? No. No, he did not. The Lord did not indicate that because the Lord did not give us that building. We can say authoritatively, he got that one wrong. I do not believe that the Lord speaks to us in ways like that. Uh, generally, when we come to a position where somebody says, the Lord told me I must do that, it is usually done in such a way to shut down any possibility for disagreement. Well, I know I need to do this because God said I need to do this. And then that person no longer is willing to accept wisdom or counsel or guidance from anyone else. Now, can that be a good thing? Well, in Paul's case, it was. Because he was told by the Holy Spirit with clarity and with authority from God that he was to do something. However, 
We never see that outside of the apostles anywhere in the New Testament. In fact, the way that the church generally operates is that there is wisdom and guidance and leadership from the shepherding leaders of the church as well as the congregation. So be very guarded and be very careful to say that God told me. Here's what I would recommend as a better approach. Rather than saying, God said to me that I must, say, I think that the Lord is leading me to. Or, as I have been praying about it, God has given me a peace about this option. That is a far greater approach than declaring authoritatively from God's mouth, He has said, because if the Lord says, there can be no debate. Application number three, I think this is the most important of the entire sermon, is that you are to commit yourself to obedience. Notice that Paul was committed to go to Jerusalem even though all of his friends tried to stop him. Well, why didn't he budge? Because the Lord had a command, go to Jerusalem. He was not looking to save himself. He was just committed to being obedient. In my opinion, this moment in the life of Paul is one of the most Christ-like moments of his life. Listen to his response when all of his best friends, all of his experienced ministerially Christian friends said, don't go. He said, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. You see, Paul was doing what he was doing because we have a Savior who did something first. See, there was a person, Peter, who approached Jesus and said, you will not go to the cross. You will not do that. Far be it from you, Lord. And Jesus' response was, get behind me, Satan. To his earthly best friend, Jesus referred to him as the evil one. Get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Jesus was on a mission far greater than self-preservation. He was going to the cross. And then, the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was in the garden praying with great agony. It says, as if there were great sweat drops of blood. He is praying in agony to the Lord, and he says those famous words, not my will, but yours be done. Did you see that repeated in the text today? This early church understood and knew that phrase. And they said, let the will of the Lord be done. Paul, he's probably going to go die. But he's only willing to do that because he has a Savior who died for him. You see, if you acknowledge and are aware of the fact that Jesus has done everything for you, that he has died for you, that he purchased you with his own blood, then you will in response be willing to obey him to the uttermost. That your response will be a heart of obedience because you love him, not because you are forced into some kind of legalistic box. You will want to do what he wants you to do because you care about what he has to say for you and because you know that he cares for you. Just like Christ, Paul was telling the Lord and everyone around him by going to Jerusalem, not my will, but yours be done. Commit yourself to that kind of obedience because the Lord is worthy. The final thing that I want to show you today is the way the church responded when they realized that Paul was certainly going to walk into this trouble. It says that they went down to the beach with him, they brought their wives and their children, and they got on their knees and they prayed. 
they got down on their knees with him and they pleaded with the Lord. Knowing that he was walking into certain agony and potentially death, they got down and they asked the Lord for his mercy and kindness. It does not mean that the Lord answered by taking away that pain. That was God's purpose in their life. But what it does mean is that when someone is moving into suffering, moving into pain, and we can see what's coming on the horizon, it is our responsibility as a church, whether persecution or circumstances, to get on our knees and to pray for that individual. We're going to put that into practice in just a moment. You see, we have a couple of people in our church who are in desperate need of prayer today. Uh, We have one person who is still in the hospital, Cornell Muha. Cornell uh, is in the process of recovery. However, on Friday, he suffered a small stroke, and this is making his recovery even more difficult. It means that he is not able to push the wheels of the wheelchair that they have given to him. It means that he is probably going to be in rehab for a much longer time. He's probably going to remain in the hospital until Friday or Saturday of this week, and then they will move him to rehab until he can get to a point of strength with both arms to maneuver. We need to pray for him. We need to get on our knees and pray. We also have a dear sister here in the room who's getting ready for a cancer surgery this week, Shannon Loven. Shannon is going to be entering into surgery, and we need to pray. We need to ask the Lord that he would eliminate this cancer in her body and that he would heal her. And we need to get on our knees and ask the Lord that he would show great mercy and kindness to her and her entire family this week. The surgery is, am I correct in saying Thursday? Friday. Friday is the surgery. We're going to be getting on our knees in just a moment. If you are able to join me when I close this sermon in prayer, I would like to ask that anyone who is physically able would literally get down on our knees and ask the Lord for these things. And I will close us out in prayer. If you are able, please join me as we take a knee before the Lord. Our Father God in heaven, we thank you for your word and the message that you have given us today. Although, Lord, there are many things that are challenging in this text, there are some that are clear. We pray, Lord, that these clear realities of obedience and prayer would stand clearly in our minds and that we would have deep convictions about how we are to operate in relation to what you have taught us today. But, Lord, in particular, we come before you right now pleading for our brother Cornell asking that you would cause his body to be completely healed and restored, that the legs that were broken will be healed, and that the muscles and the nerves and the tendons and all of the things that are currently in so much disarray would come back into full alignment and full strength. We ask, Lord, that as he goes into rehab, that he will be capable of operating the the wheelchair without any challenges, that he will be able to quickly regain strength in both of his arms. We ask, Lord, that you will give him the ability to continue to have joy in the midst and in the face of great suffering. Lord, I pray that this will draw him closer to you and that also through it, his entire unbelieving family might come to faith in Jesus Christ. Please let this be a testimony to them of the love of our church and the love that you have for him. Lord, we also pray for Shannon for the surgery that's coming up on Friday. We ask, Lord, we, we plead with you, Lord, that this surgery would be successful and that the cancer would be completely removed and that all things would be uh, completely restored. And Lord, I just ask that you would give the doctors great skill and great wisdom as they operate uh, in this surgery and that this would be uh, completely successful from a medical standpoint. Lord, I also ask that for the family, you would give great 
great rest and encouragement as this has been such a long and pervasive trial, that you would give peace and joy and sustenance and help. Lord, I do pray that there would be continued joy. I thank you for the testimony that they have of trusting in you and acknowledging your kindness and your grace in all of the process that has happened so far. But Lord, I pray that as they lean on you and they trust in you, that you would give them great strength and capability to rely on all that you are doing in their lives. Lord, we pray in all of these circumstances that your will would be done. We trust you and we ask, Lord, for your favor and your mercy over these circumstances. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.